Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And now that heart is beating fast And that's the rhythm I can dance to I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to That one big heart that's beating fast Tomorrow morning let it rain Tomorrow morning let it pour Tonight we're in the groove together Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather Gonna kick all trouble out the door Beat out all trouble and trouble Welcome to Rattle- Radical Australia. Welcome to Radical Australia. We have a live one today, Dale. We won't introduce her yet, but she's live and she's real. You know Yay. That? Yeah, well, last week's guest didn't turn up and we had to just basically um, well, send out Luigi to deal with them. So and, that's invite, and, and invite our listeners to, to come and join the program. Well, they did. They came. We, we were going to replay. And I said, oh, I can't replay something. That's boring. Yeah. So we actually had an open line. If no one showed up today, I was going to interview you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. You have saved me. Fate worse than death. I, therefore, I actually had to... Um, it is Lucy Honan. See, we've got Lucy Honan. You didn't even know she was here, did you? Surprise. Now, Lucy, look, this is about you. I know you're a retiring person who doesn't want to talk about yourself, but every guest has the same thing. And at the end of the interview, they say... Can I have another hour, please? And I say, you want more? <laughs> now, Lucy, we only ask two questions. Okay. And the first one's just to orientate listeners, because we all come from different, you know, have different generational experiences. So, what year were you born? 1985. You're just, you're a youngster. <laughs> Dale, is she, she, she older than you? Well, I'm 73. Se- Surrounded by young people. I'm, I'm 51. I'm so glad you I'm think 45's young. Well, Dale, it's all relative. I used to think 45-year-olds should all be executed when I was 20, but now I, at 66 going to 67, I'm not sure. Maybe they should be. Now, Lucy, and there's only one other question, and that's the end of the interview. Okay. What's the first thing you remember about being on planet Earth? Whoa. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's a that's a long time ago. Early memory. The first thing I remember mm. is waking up or being in a cot mm. and seeing a blue ribbon mm. and being aware that uh, my dad was in the room but my mum wasn't and not being happy about my mum not being there. That's, that's that's what it. I remember. That's it. Yep. So where were you born? I was born in Camperdown Hospital in Sydney. In Sydney, I thought for a minute Camperdown Hospital in Victoria. No, no. Yeah, in Sydney, that's a, that's a huge place. And are your parents still alive? Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Can you, can you talk about them? Or some people don't want to say anything, and they they you know you want to say <laughs> anything about them? You want to say hello? <laughs> or you want to just I don't move think on? Be, they won't be listening because they <laughs> are still in Sydney. Um, they're lost. Uh, yeah. No. Um, yeah. They're great, 
great to mum and dad. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I don't know what to say about them in the context of this interview. I guess that, um, yeah, I don't know. So they had, a, they had a positive impact on your life? Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Positive. Well, we get people here who, you know, can't even talk about their parents. So you've got to be a bit careful, you know, when, when you start off an interview because I don't want to open up wounds. So you're telling me you had perfect parents. I'm not saying perfect. <laughs> I'm definitely not saying that. No, but nobody is. No. So. They, did, they did a good job. Yeah. Do you have any, got any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I've got three sisters. Three sisters. So one older and two younger. Right. And uh, are they all kicking and alive and well? Yep. That's good, and I assume. So, where were you brought up? In Camperdown, or I was brought up uh, in Ashfield mainly in where, Sydney. Where's that? Where's um, that? <laughs> it's, if, I guess, an equivalent could be around like Maribyrnong, I suppose. So, yeah, right. um, western inner western suburbs of mm. Sydney. Mm. Um, mm. So you're Westy. I I couldn't lay claim to the full Westy. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my dad saying once in jest that there's no poofs past Strathfield, right. and we were just in front of Strathfield. So <laughs> <laughs> they were, yeah, I didn't really mean that, but right. <laughs> it was That's seared right. in my memory, and yeah, seared in your memory. All right. Yeah, first of all, you had to know what a poof was in those days, so that was which I a, did. You did. All right. We won't go down that down that path. I assume, did you go to a kindergarten or something like that, or a preschool? Yeah, yep, went to a preschool. Do you remember anything anything about it? I do. I remember playing Batman, but feeling like a fraud because I had never actually seen Batman. So I was right. making a lot of things up, uh-huh. including the superpowers that my watch, I had this plastic watch, uh-huh. and I was... In, I, I, claimed to all the other kids that it had this particular superpower and right. that was Batman's superpower but right. I hadn't seen Batman so I was just trying to persuade them that I knew what was going on. And did you persuade them? That's I the did. key. So we actually <laughs> so we actually saw a gleam of what was going to happen in your life there. You actually in kindergarten did you persuade the teachers or they had seen Batman? You know, no they weren't involved. No, they were the other leaving kids, up to us. Yeah, but the other kids were Convinced. They were. They so were following my lead. So you're a bit of a propagandist, just as a, as a <laughs> in preschool, eh? <laughs> or a chronic confabulator. You could be either one. Yeah, yeah. Call or, it what you will. Okay. All right. All right. So you moved from this idyllic preschool to what? An idyllic primary school. I went to a Catholic primary school in. Oh, Ashfield. well, we'll remove the idyllic then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it was. Um. I guess it was idyllic in a lot of ways. My first teacher was a nun, Mm -hmm. um, and she would have probably been one of the last nuns to teach in that primary school, Sister Bernadette, Um, and she was lovely. (laughs) But I, yeah, I don't know, it was a a lovely primary school experience um, in some ways. It was a really... um, I don't know, I guess one of the things that I remember distinctly about St Vincent's is that I was one of the only white kids there. Um, Excuse me. <laughs> you were the only one? One of the only white kids at the school. No, no, no. So who else was at this school? Uh, just uh, all and sundry. I don't know, lots of Vietnamese and mm. Chinese and Indonesian mm. and... Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. That well, was everybody else. <laughs> well, you would have fitted in quite nicely for name Honan. <laughs> um, look, I guess 
I yeah, I don't know. I I didn't feel I definitely didn't feel like I didn't fit in. No. All right. But so, so what is the name Honan? You know, it's quite interesting. Where, where does that originate from? Where do your parents come from? Um, Ireland. Ireland. At right. some stage or another. Right. So it's a common name in Ireland, is it? Or I wouldn't know. I've never been there, and I haven't done much family history, history or yeah, digging. Well, yeah. I have to say, it doesn't. It doesn't. I've, I've, I asked a few times about, you know, great-grandparents and whatnot, and there mm. were some... Mumblings, wasn't Mumbling. It? Somebody yeah. came on a boat at some point, and she, yeah. you know, I don't know, she was a great singer, that yeah. sort of thing. That type of thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Didn't well. seem too fascinating. Other people's lives seemed more interesting. Yeah, it's only when you're facing impending immortality that you start researching your family history. So you've got another 30 or 40 years to go before you get to okay. that stage, I could tell you I'll that. I'll kick it down the road a bit. Yeah, then. kick it down the road. <laughs> I've been thinking about it, but I thought, what's the point? It's not going to change anything. So why Catholic school? Because your parents were Irish or was the closest school? Or? Uh, <clears throat> why Catholic school? I don't know why they... I think they liked... The pastoral care element of it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. don't know why they chose that Catholic school, but when I was enrolled in the Catholic high school, mm-hmm. like the one across the road, I, um, after a year, I sort of kicked up a stink about that and, um, you know, wanted to be in the local public high school and yeah. demanded, <laughs> I guess, in lots of different ways that I be enrolled there and I asked my parents at that stage why I hadn't been and I suppose their response was that they didn't they they liked the pastoral care that Bethlehem gave and Mm, mm. they liked the library better anyway I ended up going to Boward Girls anyway the public school are they religiously inclined do they go to church or anything like Uh, that my mum my mum took us to church every Sunday my dad Uh never got involved in any of that but um, she by the time my younger sisters were in high school she was kind of negotiating away the the church business. So. Oh, right. That's fair enough. <laughs> yeah, no, it didn't. Yeah. Not, not a deeply held thing, I don't think. So your sisters went through the same process, the same Catholic primary school, or did they go We somewhere all went else? to the same Catholic primary school, right, and right. my older sister and I got out of the Catholic high school. My older sister went, ended up at a very, she got a scholarship to a private school. Mm-hmm. I ended up at the public school, and then my mum was had enough of all of the chopping and changing, and so the two younger ones just stayed at Bethlehem, the Catholic that was it. high school. Yep. They were punished <coughs> for your rebellious nature, and your sister's rebellious nature, obviously. No, yes, well, <laughs> look, that's a punishment, I'm not sure, but <laughs> yeah. But they still, well, it could have been. So what made you leave the Catholic high school after year seven? Uh, I had... I was a very existential child. Mm. I was really very, um, oh, I don't know, constantly concerned about the nature of things and what was true and all this kind of stuff. You know, the deep stuff. And I Mm. had these existential crises when I was supposed to be confirmed. You know, when Mm. you're a Catholic, when you're about 12, you get confirmed into the religion, which Mm. is you saying that, yes, I want to be a Catholic. And Mm. I... Didn't. <laughs> and I, and I, I didn't, and I, you know, I, I guess it's, it, it, I rejected the idea, and I, uh, but I didn't know how to express that, or yeah. I wasn't. A, I, anyway, I did express it, and it wasn't 
it wasn't welcome, my no. dissent. They just said, kind of, go along with it anyway, which I thought undermined the whole nature of a confirmation and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. So I... I was in conflict with the, in, you know, internal conflict with the idea of being at a Catholic school. I didn't like the idea of private schools and public schools. And I guess around that time, there was a lot of debate. It was, yeah, the beginning of a quite intense debate about the role of private schools in Australia. And I was conscious of that on some level and, you know, personally objected to it. And also a very big reason was that the local um, public school had a really good band program and I wanted to be a part of it. And my parents were really good about, you know, being like supporting me in that. And, you know, I played the trumpet and all of that. So I wanted to be in amongst all of that. So you went to Burwood Girls Girls High School. Right. What was that like? Uh, to begin with, it was being thrown in the deep end of, like, it was different. My parents were right about it, not having Mm. the same pastoral care kind of support that a Catholic school has where everybody prays for each other and there's a Mm. soft, wafty layer on top of everything. Mm. Um, I was another number. (laughs) Another number, right. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know, Bowood Girls, there's a lot of things that I remember about, like it was similarly diverse, but different to Bethlehem and the primary school, it was not, it was not unified, like, so there were different groups based on ethnicity, it was very kind of communal, I suppose, in that sense, Um, and, uh, yeah. So did you drift into a group, or you just... Oh, yeah, different different groups. Right, right. Oh, I don't know. High school is so awful, isn't it? <laughs> I just have lots of memories of, of the angst. Um, angst. Oh. Yeah. And so how, how, did you, how did you say you played the trumpet, did you? Yeah. How did your trumpet playing go? Did you get into the band at the high school? Yeah, I was in the band. What was that like? It was great. It was really great. Mm. Um, we, yeah, it felt like being part of something I'm not sure I'm a particularly gifted musician. In fact, I know I'm not a particularly gifted musician, but I loved being part of a massive group of people doing something and making something together. Mm. Do they have speech nights those days? Speech nights. They no. had assemblies. Assemblies. Did you play with the band in the yeah, assemblies? Yeah, we played, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Oh, that's good. And did you actually survive high school? Did you actually get out through the little machine at year 12 with a little thing in your hand with a degree or something? Uh, yes, I left high school eventually. <laughs> I'm not actually. Is that not true? I'm still at high school now because I'm a teacher. So did I ever leave it? <laughs> you didn't leave high school. I'm <clears throat> back there now. And you left year twelve. And uh, is it anything you excelled at at In high, high school? school stirring mm. up trouble, I suppose. What do you political mean stirring trouble? up political trouble? <laughs> what, what, what's going on here? What's, what, what type of trouble were you stirring up? Um. In the last couple of years of high school, so it was year when I was in year eleven and twelve. Mm-hmm. It was the beginning of the Iraq War. Um, right. You know, September eleven, and then <clears throat> you know, murmurings about Afghanistan and then Iraq. And my friends and I were learning about the Vietnam War in history, and we had this great history teacher who was talking. You know, we were learning about what war means, I suppose, and and reading about that, and also reading about the fact that people had stopped it, um, stopped the war. And you know, I, my friends and I, you know, decided we were, we were going to do the same thing. 
<laughs> single-handedly. Single-handedly. And so what did you organise? So we organised, um, we found out about these walkouts that were happening. Um, mm. Like well, there were the massive anti-war rallies at that stage that were happening on the weekends. But somebody somewhere was organising these student walkouts and there were like dribblings on school days of students coming out into the city at Town Hall in Sydney. Mm. That's where everyone rallies. And... Um, we organised, so we somehow, there must have been very supportive teachers, got up at assembly, at whole school assemblies and announced to everybody that this is what we were going to do. Um, and so hundreds of girls left on whatever the day it was, Thursday, and, you know, there was argy-bargy about did you have to bring a note for, from school or not? And we said, no, nah, we're not bringing a note from school, from home, we're just walking out. Mm. And so we did... Um, and we did that three times and each time, you know, bigger and bigger groups of kids walked out and then we were Boa girls at the big weekend anti-war rally and all of this sort of stuff. But it, it ended kind of, I don't know, sadly slash in a political lesson that it's not that easy because the war started (laughs) and we hadn't stopped it and we were kind of like, what? Nobody cared. (laughs) How many of us did we have to have? Um, 52%, I think. Yeah. Not 3%. Maybe, yeah. Mm. All right. Did that did that kind of darken your soul? Did that kind of put you off political activism when you left high school? Uh, not, no. It just made, I guess it was the first lesson that it's not that easy, is it? It's no. not just a moral gesture. Mm. It's a real fight and you, right. you have to go deeper. Mm. And the moral outrage, the moral gesture, the fist in the air. It all means nothing at the end of the day. Mm. All right, let's go on to something more positive. Obviously, you graduated. You have all these... What do they have in New South Wales? What do they call it when you graduate? HSC. I have HSC there too? Yeah. And so, obviously, the world was your oyster once you graduated, or did you take a year off? No, I went to... Immediately, (laughs) (laughs) um, I went to Sydney Uni and did an arts degree. An arts degree. A very long arts degree. Uh, I won't ask. Why, why did you do an arts degree? It's do, is that, are you genuinely asking? I am. Yeah, I'm genuinely asking. Why would you do an arts... If you can get to, in, into Sydney Uni, why would you do an arts degree? Um, the GFC hadn't hit, and the idea that you have to do something seriously to protect yourself from economic disaster hadn't hit me. I was like... Right. I mean, I, I wasn't... A rich kid, mm. like I was a, a very well looked after working class child whose parents thought, yes, get a broader degree before you go more specific and oh, get, right. a, get a trade as it, you yeah. know. Yeah. So they encouraged us all to do broad degrees before broad we... degrees. Big mistake for them, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, my mum I, my mum had done a social work degree before she became a nurse. Right. Which I and you know I guess that was something that she really she hated social work but she really liked the fact that she had done that you know done that so degree, yeah so did you actually finish the arts degree you said it took a long time yeah and there was a lot of activism in those years I excuse got me excuse me you didn't learn anything I did after learn. high school you go to university and you continue to be an activist what's wrong with you 
I mean, what type of things were happening then? The Iraq War is over, isn't it? You know, there's nothing to do. Yeah, the that's university right. after that, is settled, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was Tampa. I mean, when I went to, when I got onto campus, what I really wanted to do was refugee activism, actually, right. because I didn't get it. I really, and it was a genuine question for me. I was just like, I didn't understand why. In particular, what I didn't understand was why the Labor Party was supporting the horrors at that stage of the, you know, the desert detention centres and mm-hmm. and things like that. I just I just was like, what's in it for them? And I didn't really, I guess I was sheltered in a lot of ways. I didn't really understand race politics and the way that it works in Australia. Um, and so I wanted to be part of a campaign around that, but there wasn't one on campus. There was education activism and all this other stuff. So, I don't know, as a substitute, I got involved in that and... Yeah, rumbled around. I did lots of, um, I joined the Women's Collective. I joined the Labor Club, the Greens Club, right. you know, like everything <laughs> that I could find club. What you call a promiscuous activist. Uh, <laughs> I, oh, well, look, I was He's monogamous, at, monogamous but, but at, at, you know, yeah, yeah. in stages. In stages. <laughs> so did, did you learn anything out of all that? You know, going from club to club, you know, seeing how people work and... Yeah, I did. Um... I guess I learnt the same lesson over and over again, didn't I? <laughs> I don't know. You can't, you can't, you can't just be symbolic. I guess you know that's a starting point, but it, where does it, where does it take you next? Um, and I also, I don't know. There, there was factionalism at Sydney mm. University in a big mm. way, as there is on all campuses. And I learnt pretty quickly that the Labor Club was just. I couldn't, I couldn't work my way through how not to be. How to be practical but not evil. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, didn't you realise it was a matter of, you know, it was a profession for a lot of people. It was. To become a politician. I you did understand that, but yeah. the lure of... Um, Political office didn't... No, it didn't, there? but what did lure me and what kept me kind of there for quite a long time was, like, the sense that at least maybe there is some reality to the mm. Labor Party. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, it's got a soul. They make... Well, on the one hand, a soul, but on the other hand, can't they make change? Isn't there a point at which they do have the levers of power? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, if I were to abstain from that, does that make me just being on the outside of where all the action is? Mm. Um, but, yeah, I guess in, in the end... Um, I became a socialist because, oh, well, there were lots of phases in between there. Um, mm. But um, I just, I guess I needed to have some framework and I found a framework of relating to those people in the Labor Party who are those working class, the, the class soul of the Labor Party, but who aren't the evil no. <laughs> um, sellouts mm. at the top. Mm. Yeah. And how about your experience with the Green uh, group in, at university? Greens were disorganised at that stage. They were all over the place, and I, I, you know, I went to a couple of meetings, and I was really disappointed that they weren't doing the things that I saw the leadership of the Greens doing. So, you know, Kerry Nettle at that stage was really big, and um, I admired, you know, their stand particularly against the Iraq War and refugees. But I just didn't see how they were doing that in reality. No. 
So they didn't hold me for very long there. Right. So you, should you gravitate towards a socialist group or a, a Actually, number of the, socialist so groups? Actually, so the interim period was the Women's Collective where mm. I just kind of did... I was doing lots of feminist organising and it was not based on any party. Mm. Um, and we were, I don't know, very radical... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what we did. We did lots of things. It was RU486 and abortion mm, rights right. and anti-rape and reclaim the night and so mm, on. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but I had a really bizarre or conflicting, I suppose, experience because towards the end of my degree was the, the Howard's um, Northern Territory intervention. Mm. Um, and the Women's Collective at Sydney Uni had been asked to take notes at a women's conference, it was like a um, a conference for Indigenous women, and we were in the major part not Indigenous, so mm. we were asked to play the role of note takers right. and administrative support mm. and this sort of thing at this legal conference, mm. which we were all really excited to do, and we went, and it was in Western New South Wales somewhere, <clears throat> and that weekend there were a lot of women, Indigenous women, talking about domestic violence and the you know um, I suppose the impact of racism and sexism combined on their lives and we were, you know, taking those notes. But at the same time, in fact, like simultaneously, the Northern Territory intervention was being announced and it was being announced under the rubric, I suppose, of defending women from violence against pedophiles and men. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really kind of, it was this... I was just appalled, I suppose, Mm. that this was happening, but also that there was this group of women coming together who weren't saying anything about that and who weren't rejecting it. And I was really frustrated and angry that this was an opportunity to to reject that and to reject it from the most authoritative position that the, you know... Maybe maybe they felt it didn't need to be rejected. Maybe they felt there was, was some type of break... I, I I mean, there were lots of different points of view there yeah, about yeah, that, and there yeah. were lots of points of view. On yeah. it. There were lots of things being debated about the role of facts, you know, the role of different um, mm. government services and legal support things, and so on. But I felt, I felt like, it, yeah, I don't know. There were there was a political crisis that was mm. being, if not objected to, then facilitated by this silence, and I didn't like it. So I, I, I joined the anti-intervention campaign in Sydney mm. and that was probably the most difficult campaign but also where I've, I've learned the most and, um, yeah, I don't know, understood the most about organising a class. Yeah, racial lines and class lines and women and men and, and trying to, to find, um, yeah, a unity without compromising on fundamental political demands mm. in that way. Now, we're going to do something that's very rude. We're going to let you have a rest for 20 seconds. It's uh, 16.30. It's 4.30 p.m. This is Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. Her right Royal Highness, her Empress Dale Bridge, is doing all the technical work and uh, nodding furiously and occasionally will ask questions. I'm just sitting here being a show pony asking questions of uh, Lucy Honan, who's had an extraordinarily interesting life, and we're not even in her mid-20s yet. All right. Come on, I'm 32. <laughs> no, 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 we, we haven't got to there. We haven't got to 32 yet. We haven't got to 32, right? Okay, yeah. Intervention. So how did the... How did... You said the anti-intervention group you're in kind of has moulded 
moulded you as an activist. Mm. How did it do that? Uh, was it the issue or the way they worked together? It was the issue, but it was also the arguments. When I was a feminist, I really strongly believed in autonomous organising. I believed that the only people who had a right to speak about an issue were the people who were oppressed, you know. Um, and I learned through that experience of all the different voices and all the different kind of conflicting political opinions around the intervention, but also throughout the intervention campaign itself, that that just doesn't work um, and it really um, obscures voices, as in it obscures people's perspectives and it assumes from a, from a starting point that there is only one perspective and it also disables solidarity. So how how people can come together and fight in solidarity with other people, um, yeah, if there is a constant um, rejection of that solidarity, I suppose, and a, and a rejection of the idea that solidarity from outside groups is important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, that, that was important to me. And, the, and then I learned as well about um, union, union and workers' rights and um, workers supporting black rights um, because there were, like I said, there were socialists and solidarity activists who were organising in that campaign and that was the strategy that they brought to it. That was like, we need to get the MUA here. We need to get some speakers down to the teachers' conference, you know, from Mutajulu who can talk mm. about why the bilingual program being axed is really a disaster. Um, mm. We need to get some speakers out on CFMEU sites who can, you know, talk about why the jobs, you know, that are being cut under CDEP are our jobs, you know, mm. in a collective sense, our jobs. And when I saw that in action, even though it was small scale, because the union movement is not the strongest in Australia, it's not at its high no, point, could no, you say? No, no. <laughs> um, but the the little sparks of that were so powerful and more powerful than anything that I'd done. So that you did that, right. So basically, you understood that in order for to go from symbolic action to action that has some consequence, you need to bring people on board and yep. and, and actually work with the their commonalities, not their differences. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And yeah. their power. Because, yeah. and, I get, and I got that, you mm. know, that workers do have a particular power that's beyond mm. just symbolism. Mm. Yeah. Right. So, so let's get back. When did you finish the degree? Uh, <laughs> it was 2008. Eight. And then you said you're doing teaching now. Yeah. yeah. So obviously you went to teacher's college after that or...? I moved to Melbourne. You moved to Melbourne. What year was that? 2009. Yeah. You, you realise that about 90% of the Melbourne population weren't born here. We've all moved here. Dale moved to Melbourne. I moved to Melbourne. You moved to Melbourne. Really? 90% of 3CR moved to Melbourne. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So what made you, what made you come to Melbourne? Oh, I had a partner at the time whose mm. sister was having a baby here. Mm. And I hated Melbourne. I really didn't want to come. So I said, Why do you hate Melbourne for? Oh, it's cold. And oh, it's come on. You're a tough nut, you know. You're out there <laughs> campaigning, being an activist since you were in preschool, you know, in kindergarten. You were. No, I just, but also I just was, I felt like I was learning things in Sydney and how to start again in another city. I didn't. It's hard. It is yeah. hard starting again. You're quite right. What you would have been in your mid 20s. So yeah. It is hard. And obviously, when some partners got certain demands and you've got certain. 
hopes and aspirations. There's yeah. always that clash. But so, we we agreed that we would go for a year, and we were both going to do a teaching degree here. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we broke up six months into that year, um, but um, you know I had to stay to finish the teaching degree anyway. And then I got a job in St Albans, which is where I was doing my rounds. So I ended up. Staying. <laughs> well, that's good. No, St. Albans a good suburb. I go there every Thursday. Do you? Yeah, go over there. No, Friday, sorry. Every Friday. That's what do you my do beat. in St. Albans? What do I do in St. Albans? I see patients. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do get sick people in St. Albans, you know that. <laughs> I have noticed, actually. You have noticed. That. <laughs> it's quite interesting, St. Albans. It is an interesting mix of people. Yeah. And uh, your uh, experiences with the anti-intervention group would hold you in good stead in St Albans and your experience in the high school you went to, the girls' high school at Burwood, would hold you in good stead. Yep. It's that type of suburb. Man. Yep. It has, it's got a, as you know, it's got a dynamism all, all of its own. So how long have you been in St Albans for? So this year is 2018, isn't it? So eight years. Eight years. Plus, maybe nine years, yeah. So you came to Melbourne, didn't join the inner city mob, you know, the cafe latte... <laughs> Beer swigging, wine hold up, sipping. Hold up, I live in Brunswick. So. Ah, you live in Brunswick. Wow, well, now we flushed you out. Yeah. You teach in St Albans, you live in Brunswick. That's right. Bit of a worry. Oh, I used to live in Brunswick once, but I've moved out to the outer suburbs and I'm moving out to the regions next year, so, you know. You're still in Brunswick. Yeah. Why? Brunswick. Expensive um, real estate, terrible coffee. <laughs> yeah, um, because I do so much activism in the city, mm. I've thought a lot, and we've both thought, my partner and I have thought mm. about going elsewhere cheaper, mm. um, but she's studying at the moment in the city, and I, yeah, I spend almost every night of the week in a meeting somewhere in the city, so right, right. it doesn't make sense. So what type of, um, what's taking up your life these days, what type of? Mainly refugee activism. Right. So I'm in the Refugee Action Collective mm-hmm. um, and also Teachers for Refugees. Um, yeah, and that takes up. And also I do a lot of education union activism. Right. Um, yeah. Getting back to refugees, I mean, I think um, we all agree that this has been a particularly harrowing five years mm. for everybody. But... Again, the Australian people don't seem to be able to come across, do they? Have you got any ideas why? I dispute that, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I think it's shifting. Um, when you look at particularly Labor members and mm. Labor supporters, people mm. who vote Labor, uh, support for ending what the government is doing, um, closing the camps, mm. is around 70%. 72%. So that's big. Um, there are more people overall. This is including all, you know, <coughs> Labor, Liberal, Pauline mm. Hanson and beyond, um, who there are more people who want to see the camps closed than who are in support of them staying open. open sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, I, I mean, it is disappointing that it's not a fervent outrage of no. a vast majority. It's just, just extraordinary. Yeah. It's extraordinary. I think people don't understand how little rights they even have, but mm. uh, not just the refugees, mm. but it's just extraordinary that we have, seem to have lost this capacity to put ourselves in other people's shoes. And when you think that Australia has got a 
huge history of refugees coming here. Most of the people involved in the Eureka Rebellion were refugees from the 1848 rebellions across Europe, and they flocked, you know, to Ballarat and Victoria to create a new life. And then yeah. you've got the, you've got the all the Jewish refugees that came after the Second World War, and all the Baltic refugees that, and in some of those communities, which I'm familiar with, the the the, the amount of inability to understand that what people are going through is exactly what they went through, but at least they were able to, you know, land here and become <coughs> part of this country. Mm. I, I don't understand. I, I, really, I mean, my parents were migrants, and I still don't understand. And I've got relatives who would have some of the most, shall I put it, difficult viewpoints that make your father's joke seem tame. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't, I don't understand. Do you understand? I mean, you're, you're involved in it every day, more so than me. I, th- I mean, yes, we have that history, and that's the true history of Australia, but the flip side of that history is the white Australia policy. Mm. Um, it's, you know, uh, consistent apprehension and violence and deterrence against people who breach, so-called breach the borders. Um, so there is um, contending, you know, in people's, um, for, for people's, support against really horrific founding mythologies about what Australia it is and what it means to be a citizen and those sorts of things. Um, and I think there is also just the classic manoeuvre <laughs> of um, just uh, insinuating explicitly and implicitly that you are here, you know, because we've kept other people out and you can stay here only because we're keeping these other ones out and if they came, then everything would change and you would lose everything. Mm. Um, and I think people believe that um, because they do feel insecure and because there are lots of insecurities in their lives. Mm, it's a great mobiliser fear and especially if you, if, you, if you are stirred up at a uh, government level. That's right. It's, it's very effective. I mean, people... When you look at the uh, massacres in, uh, was it Burinda? Was it Burinda? No, Rwanda. Rwanda. How, how the government forces were involved in creating the climate, you know, that, creating that climate for, for those things to happen. It's the same here. We see government after government creating that climate, which, and people feel, oh, it's, it's normal to hate these people, you know. They're not human. Yeah. So, how do you feel, how are you going to go forward with the Refugee Collective on this particular issue if you feel there's a bit of give? Which direction are you going? Which direction? In um, terms of closing down the camps, in terms of uh, strategy. Oh, okay. Um, actually, you've caught me on a very optimistic day. Well, that's excellent. <laughs> good, good, good. That's well, what we want, optimism. Well, we had a really great rally on the weekend that I was not feeling optimistic about at all. I was mm. kind of feeling like, you know, five years and the, mm. the wear and tear of a five of, of a long campaign mm. and... Um, it, it can be demoralising to be fighting on for so long and Peter Dutton just looks like yeah. such an... Do not... <coughs> okay, hold do, back, but you no, know no, what I'm thinking. No, no, I'm just thinking. saying, do not, <laughs> do, do not denigrate assholes. They're useful. <laughs> Peter isn't, okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, he... Yeah, so I was feeling pretty low about that. And then the global context, there's Trump, there's, you know, mm. Europe... Um, 
But we had this massive rally on the weekend. It was more than a thousand people, I reckon, mm. and mm. there was really like deep. It was deep. You yeah. know, when you go yeah. to a rally that's deep, there's mm. lots of people there mm. who know exactly what's going on, and they hang around to talk to other people and like, what are we doing next? And you're here, and what have you done? And I'll sign every petition and take leaflets, and what's the next thing? It was like that. Mm-hmm. So I feel like. <clears throat> There is a global context to what they are doing to refugees, but there's a global context to the resistance as well. And I feel like the fact that people in the USA stood up to Trump's ICE thing, you know, mm. child separation yeah. craziness, and while it wasn't a complete victory... Well, Peter must have given him... Peter Dutton must have given him some advice. We're very good at it. Yeah, well, that, I mean, they literally did. When mm. Trump rang up Turnbull to talk about the US deal... Trump said, you're worse than I am, That's gleefully. Right. So, <laughs> anyway, I've, I, you know, people fought back and, and we have, there have been smaller victories along the way with, um, you know, within Australia, like people who have been brought off Nauru, the fact that there are now refugees ending up in the USA is a victory of our mm. side. It's not a total victory, but it's partial. Mm. So I think the same things like broadening the campaign, getting the union support. We had CFMEU flags there on the weekend, which right. was really big because mm. the CFMEU has had a fight about whether or not they support um refugee rights and after the Labor conference where they voted to um, squash the debate about refugees, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a rank-and-file disagreement about that and out of that came a lot of people saying, you know, we stand on the side of this movement. So that Mm -hmm. was really powerful. So we're going to keep going in that direction. Um, I think the lead-up to the election will be difficult um, because... (sighs) The Labor Party sucks. <laughs> oh, no, everybody will bunker down. Well, there is that. Trying to be a small target and uh, thinking, and not actually taking a leadership role, but actually following. But also, polls, yes, uh, that's right. There's there's that element of mm. it, and there's the wishful thinking about what Labor will do. But then mm. on the flip side of that, I think mm. there is also a tendency to lump all the people who hope for better in with the leadership of the ALP, mm. um, and and that can then end up alienating us once again. Mm. So I think there's a there there is tacticalness that needs to happen in the lead up to the to the election so that we can fight on beyond the election and we will need to because Shorten has said that he will do nothing different. Well, so. you may say that now, but if he's elected he may change his mind, the party. If you're saying there's so much push from the grassroots, although I just heard that you'll know this, that pre selections are going to be Controlled by the uh, party, not by the membership in Victoria. Yeah, right. Yeah. Didn't they just have that last yeah. weekend? Yeah, last secret. weekend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is quite extraordinary. But getting back to you, I'm not interested in them. I'm interested in you. All right, as an actor, what, what keeps you going? You must get tired if you're working full time and you're living in Brunswick with all those bright lights. <laughs> Um, solidarity, like as in what solidarity? Soli- what is what is solidarity? Could you explain to me what solidarity is? Um, it's, it's, it's knowing that you're fighting alongside another person, that's knowing that you are with people and that, that's you know, right. you, you're in a battle with a team. That's <laughs> right. You're a social animal. Yeah. And you've got people similar. It's, it's like in the Eureka Roof. You know the Eureka Roof, obviously, don't you? No. Lucy? No. You don't know the Tell Eureka Roof. what's the Eureka Oath? The oath that was taken on the 29th of, de- 
29th of November in 1854, four days before the Eureka Rebellion on the 3rd of December. Go on. You don't know the Eureka Oath, the greatest working class oath taken by any human being on the face of the planet since creation. Go you don't on. Know, and you Re- call yourself tell, an tell activist. Me, tell me, tell me. And it's got everything that you think of. We. That's us, everybody. Not white males, women, men, pigs, animals. We. We swear by the Southern Cross. That's not a religious symbol. All the, all the migrants that came here and refugees and asylum seekers that came here in the 1850s to find their fortunes, when they lay in their tents and looked up in the sky, what did they see? The Southern Cross. The Southern Cross you can't see in the Northern Hemisphere. You can only see in the Southern Hemisphere. So it was, to them it reminded them they're on a new land. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other. That's solidarity. Truly by each other. And finally, we swear, the cross to, <laughs> we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight mm. to defend our rights and liberties. They believed they were born with valuable rights and liberties that nobody could take away from them, and you had to fight for them. That's an extraordinary statement for a group of men and women to take on a tree stump at Baker Hill in Ballarat on the 29th of November, 1854. So we may invite you to the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebrations, which mm-hmm. we have every year. Mm. It'll be on a Monday, so you have to take a day off school. <laughs> but no, you're telling me you're working class. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have allowed the right to capture the symbolism of the Eureka Rebellion. Mm. And the Eureka Rebellion was based on four principles. Internationalism, you had people of all races and religions, who died on that day. It's based on solidarity. It's based on the concept of direct action. Nothing could be more direct than taking up arms to defend your rights and liberties, you know. So it's based, and it's based, you know, internationalism, direct action and direct democracy because decisions weren't made by representatives. If you look at the history, they elected delegates at their mass meetings of 10, 15,000 people to carry out decisions. Mm. Extraordinary period of Australian history. Mm. You've got to take it back to the unions. The CFMEU has a picnic every day, every Monday yep. on the 3rd of December, so the Monday after. Sorry, sorry for giving you a lesson. It's, it's, it's a hobby. No, no, it's okay. Because when you said solidarity, that's what they said. It's like the, you know about the, uh, come on, help me, Dale. My history's terrible. The men who, who, who swore an oath in, was it 1826? The, the, um, and they were sent to Australia as convicts. There was such an uproar in England that they, was, they were released a year later. Uh, the, um, yeah. the farmers, the six agricultural labourers, they formed the first union in Britain in 1826 and they were all sentenced to life exile, hard labour. I'm sure a listener knows. Ring us up, 94198377. Tell Jane and uh, she'll uh, race in and tell us who they were. They were martyrs, I remember that, they were called. I'll look it up. See, see, a lot of radical activists from England ended up in Australian prisons during the convict area. Mm. We've got this huge history. But sorry, it's your story, not mine. So you said you're doing work with the Education Union. What type of work are you doing there and what union? Australian Education Union. Mm. Um, Look, um, this year the big fight is about NAPLAN. 
um, right. which is the uh, standardised national test in Year 3, 5 and 9. And there's a group of us who are rank-and-file AEU members who want to push to get NAPLAN banned and the My School website, which is the website that publishes the scores and encourages parents to shop around for the best school. Yeah. Um, and we want that gone too. Um, and the union has called for a review of NAPLAN and actually lots of people are calling for a review now because it's just been exposed as a shoddy test and um, having really poor impacts and, you know... Well, even, even the New South Wales Education Minister, the Liberal member, wants to get rid of NAPLAN, doesn't he? In fact, sometimes he seems like its most ardent opponent, which is really bizarre. <laughs> well, why would it be bizarre? <laughs> Maybe he's seen... Like you said, you work with disparate elements. I think it's bizarre because it is such a beautiful tool of neoliberalism, you know. And, and I mean, it is bizarre and it's not bizarre because what Rob Stokes secretly wants is a more rigorous version so that kids are tested constantly Mm. in every single subject, permanent testing. Ah, It's the university model, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, well... It is, exactly. It's it's Continuous assessment. Yeah. Continuous assessment. Destroy student activism. Yeah, true. In, in my day, you'd, you'd go to university and you'd sit an exam at the end of the year and you either passed or failed and you started or you didn't study in between. Mm. Whether it was medical school or engineering or arts, there was just mm. one test a year. Yeah, that's interesting. And that gave us the freedom to actually be activists mm. and go places and do things and be part of flying pickets and, you know. Yeah, but that's now, really interesting. And now with continuous assessment, it, it, it is a chain. It actually chains you to the institution and steals your time. It, it's a, it, it steals your time as an activist. And it steals your sense of self. Like, mm. I just think the, the impact of testing and continuous testing like that, it's a, just a constant reminder mm. that you are being evaluated by the system. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you're constantly having it reduced to a number mm. and weighed against the others. And, you know, it's not... It's not abstract for people what that means. Like, it really does become a representation of your market value. Mm. That's right. And, and yeah. that's in, in, like, today's kind of insecurity that prevails. And, yeah, that, that's horrifying for people constantly. And I think it does cause really damaging impacts at university, yeah. like what you're talking about, but at school. Yeah, and more, I think even more damaging is what you alluded to, was the fact that you get this list of schools published as, as if each school is equal, is working, you know, it's not a, mm. it's a handicap race. Mm. We had the same debate in the, um, uh, there was a debate amongst medical practitioners, surgeons, they wanted to do a, a list of deaths and complications that's for each crazy. surgeon. No, that's what they wanted to do, so that people could actually pick and choose. And then people, it didn't take long to realise that the surgeons who do the most complex procedures, who take the risk, yeah. who are not cherry picking, you know, simple procedures, you know, large public hospitals doing the most, are the ones who are going to have the highest death rate. In, that's right. And it's the same with NAPLAN. You got, you know, say there's a school in St Albans that you're teaching at, and they put it up, and they think it's the same as. You know, some private school that's got, you know, an equestrian centre. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, we've got, we've got an answer, have we? No, 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 have we got an answer? No, we haven't got an answer. Penny martyrs, who knows? All right, what are you going to do? You're, 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 you're almost 32, you're living in Brunswick, you're paying a high rent, what are you going to do? I keep fighting. For the future. Keep fighting. <laughs> but what? Um, 
for system change, fundamentally changing mm-hmm. the system, but along the way to close the camps, bring mm-hmm. the refugees here mm-hmm. in that plan, mm-hmm. rank and file power in the union. Mm-hmm. Are you doing this through a political party or a... Yeah, lots of different ways, but I'm in a political organisation called Solidarity. Solidarity, yep. Um, so... Yep. What is the answer, Dale? The answer, a listener has uh, called in to t- let us know that it was in 1834 uh, the Toll Puddle Martyrs right. were de- deported to Australia for trying to form a union. There so you thank go. you for calling in. Thank you very much. We have better listeners than the ABC. They call <laughs> in for help and they get help and we call in for help. And we get excellent help. 1834, the Toll Martyrs. You should look them up, Lucy. Well, you told me I wasn't allowed to take notes, so I've written it on my hand. But I <laughs> no, I said, you, I said you couldn't read your notes. You didn't say you couldn't take notes. Okay, all right. Well. So are you going to stay in Melbourne? Or do you think you'll move Yeah, on? yep. There's right. a lot to do in Melbourne. Um, yeah. Definitely staying put for now. Yeah. Yep. All right. Has Solidarity got anything coming up that we should know about that's open to everybody or...? Yes, um, so we're bringing out a activist from Austria. He's an anti-fascist mm-hmm. activist, um, and he'll be speaking at Melbourne University in a couple of weeks' time. So you can look at that up. Um, the details of that up on solidarity.net.au. Mm-hmm. But we have our Keep Left conference in Sydney as well on the 18th and 19th of August. Right. Is that a closed conference? Was it an open, open conference? Open conference. So there'll be lots of um, the ones that I'm looking forward to. Actually, are the um, the Skype link ups with the teacher unionists from the USA. So the, the, right. There's been this rash of um, teacher strikes, like uh, wildcat teacher strikes in the Republican states, and there'll be people who led that speaking, mm-hmm. um, as well as immigrant and trans rights um, activists from the US and, mm. a- and David from Austria talking mm. about fighting fascism in Europe, which mm. is terrifying and important. And the Solidarity Salon in uh, Sydney Road, is that in different, different organisation. Different organisation, yeah. totally different. I've blotted my copybook there, haven't I? <laughs> no, I just wondered if, whether it was anything to do with you, but totally different. Not that one. And obviously you're not connected to Solidarity in Poland when you saw what happened there. Yeah, <laughs> no, shame about how that ended, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's what happens when you trust people with big moustaches. It's always a worry. That's the 1970s look. Says a man with a big moustache in front of me. Oh, no, it's a very small moustache. <laughs> Well, you wouldn't trust me, Lucy. Come on. You wouldn't well, trust me. Well, I've walked old. in here and let you ask me questions about my childhood. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> level of trust there. Well, no, you knew that nobody listens to the program. Oh, you just, <laughs> oh, actually, nobody nobody just rang in. That's right. <laughs> thank you, Lucy Honan. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for sharing your life. Now, thank you very much, Dale, for doing all the uh, wonderful technical stuff. And thank you, listeners. For listening, and as we said last week, you know somebody who's interesting or boring, we'll make them interesting. And I want to come on Radical Australia, ring up 94198377, ask for Michaela and she'll slot you in. Thank you very much, Lucy, and all Thank the best you. to you and your partner in the future. And I think with people like you, I can rest easy in my grave when I go there the next few years. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>
could see no way to keep my body still. Find my way back home.